It was seven years ago during the opening ceremony of the 2016 Summer Olympics. That's when a 27-year-old Brazilian man threw a bucket of water on the torch that carried the Olympic flame. The unnamed man was immediately arrested and he later told police that, well, he had been dared to douse the flame. He had been dared. Just some friends on Facebook dared him to do it and so he tried. And he, he insisted that it was all just a big joke for his Facebook fans and yet the local authorities didn't see the joke, they didn't see the humor in this and they took this a bit more seriously by charging the man with the crime of damaging public property. As he was placed under arrest, you know, the torch carrying the Olympic flame, well, it continued on course to Rio de Janeiro. Now, you might not know this, but there have actually been several who have attempted to quench the flame of the Olympic fire. And, and, and that's pretty sad, especially as we consider how the Olympic flame actually serves as a symbol of the competitive spirit that compels athletes to strive for physical perfection. And while it's sad to learn that there are people who have made it their goal to quench that symbolic Olympic flame, what's even worse is that there are Christians in the church today who are actively quenching the flame of the Holy Spirit, which is a symbol of the power we need to achieve spiritual perfection. And as a result, there are many in the church today who are now suffering from an arrested state of spiritual development because the fire of the Holy Spirit isn't burning bright in their lives. And it's here in our text today where we find Paul actually helping his audience to understand that the Christian who is quenching the fiery flame of the Spirit is also failing to live in the light of the Lord. And knowing how easy it is to quench the fiery flame of the Spirit, Paul encouraged every Christian to fan the flame of our faith. And with this as the goal, we're going to spend our time today learning about three ways that believers are able to fan the flame of our faith. Well, first of all, we're going to learn that we fan the flame of our faith with biblical prophecy. Secondly, we fan the flame of our faith with doctrinal purity And then thirdly and finally, we'll see that we fan the flame of our faith with sacrificial piety. And with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica to fan the flame of their spiritual life. And and as you make your way to the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, it was in our study last week when we learned about the way that Paul was encouraging his audience to realize that Christians have been called to become believers who are content in Christ. And it was during that study when we learned about the way that content Christians are joyful and prayerful and grateful. And now here in our text today, we find Paul encouraging his audience to also fan the flames of their faith so that we might continue to become Christians who are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, with this as our focus. Let's pick up our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to draw your attention there to verse 19. Here Paul declares, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now here in our text today, we find Paul, he's encouraging his audience to refrain from anything that might quench the spirit. 
And just to be clear here, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. And in order to better understand this command, I should take a moment to remind you that our God has revealed himself as a triune being who eternally exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And while it's true that the three persons within the Godhead are co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial, it's also true that each of these divine persons, they share different roles and responsibilities within the Godhead, uh, and especially regarding the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of those who trust in Jesus. Uh, For example, you know, God the Father was... Uh, the one who decided to send his only begotten son so that the Lord Jesus could come and offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And so God the Father is the sender. Jesus Christ is the one being sacrificed. You know, there are some who think that God the Father was, you know, took on humanity and and so that God the Father was sacrificed uh, on, on the cross. And that's just not the case. God the Father sent his only begotten Son to be sacrificed for our sins. At the same time, listen, the Holy Spirit actively formed the humanity of the Lord Jesus within the womb of the Virgin Mary. And while some suggest that the Holy Spirit didn't come along until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that the Holy Spirit uh, has been uh, within the Godhead since eternity past, and you know it, it was the one who actively formed the humanity of Jesus there in uh, Mary's womb so that God the Son could then put on human frailty and receive the punishment that we deserve there on the cross of Christ. Not only that, but the Lord Jesus assured his disciples that God the Father was also preparing to send the Holy Spirit so that the church can receive the help that we need after the resurrection of our Redeemer. I want to consider the way that Christ Jesus presented this promise here. and It's in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. Here Jesus declares, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, as we consider this promise that Christ Jesus was presenting to his disciples, we must not fail to notice the triunity of the Godhead as God the Son is asking God the Father to send God the Holy Spirit so that the church-age believers could receive the help that we need to serve our Savior. And it's also interesting to note here that it was just before his ascension into heaven, that's when our risen Redeemer, Jesus Christ, he reminded his disciples about this promise. Now, with this as the focus, I want to consider Luke's account of that day when Jesus ascended into heaven. And so hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. You see, it's here in the first chapter of Acts. This is where we find uh, Luke. He's uh, recounting the final moments that the Lord Jesus spent with his disciples just before being received up into glory. And seeing how this was his final opportunity to provide them with face-to-face instructions well, then there should be no doubt that he was presenting them with the primary guidance that they needed for the church age. Uh, With this in mind, I want to consider Christ's command, which is found here in Acts chapter 1. Look with me there in the beginning of verse, uh, in the middle of verse 4, I should say. Uh, There Luke tells us that he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Simply put, listen, the Lord Jesus was reminding his disciples about the promise that God the Father presented when he promised to send the Holy Spirit so that those who trust in God the Son can then receive the supernatural power that we need to serve our Savior in the way that we ought to serve him. And just as Jesus instructed, well, the disciples went and waited in the upper room there in Jerusalem for the day when God the Father would fulfill this promise. And with this as the focus, let's flip forward now to Acts chapter 2. I want to consider Luke's account of this here in Acts chapter 2. Look with me there beginning at verse 1. Here Luke tells us that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly... There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, here in these verses, we find Luke's account of this day when the Holy Spirit was finally poured out upon the disciples of Christ. This was, of course, the day of Pentecost. And and listen, this this actually marks the, the beginning of the church age. This marks the beginning of the church age. And not only that, but this was also the point in time when the born again believers began to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Prior to this point in time, the Holy Spirit might empower a saint for a season and then, and, then, and then depart. But this marks this new relationship between God and man so that those who trust in Jesus Christ in the church age are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And while many people tend to focus in on the way that those believers all spoke in tongues, I want to draw your attention to the significance of the fiery flames that appeared above their heads. Notice again there in Acts chapter 2, It's verse 3 where Luke informs us that there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. In other words, there at the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there was this visual manifestation of supernatural flames, one flame of fire above the head of each believer. And that's very interesting. I believe that God was using this as a visual sign to help his disciples to grasp the significance of this moment. You see, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, well, it was not only the beginning of the church age, but this was also the day when every born-again believer would become the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the the moment in time when every born-again believer becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's verse 16, where Paul asks, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know this? The born-again believer has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's no temple in Jerusalem during the church age because, Christian, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the church age begins to wrap up, we'll see another temple built, and then the 70th week of Daniel will commence. But as it stands right now, Christian, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul doubled down on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he assures, or he assures the church that the body, the actual physical body of the believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us. And as we consider this comparison between our body and the temple which was built in Jerusalem, we must not fail to see the connection between the, between the temple's sanctuary lamp, which was known as a menorah, and the indwelling spirit of God. And in case you didn't know, the only source of light within the temple, well, it was the seven-branched candelabrum commonly known as the menorah. According to the instructions given, by, uh, given to Moses, uh, these temple lamps were made out of pure gold, and not only that, but it's also interesting to note that they were, they were using freshly pressed olive oil as the fuel for the flame. And listen, the priests were also commanded to keep those lamps burning so that there was always light within the temple of God. And what's even more interesting is that the oil and, and the flame on those lamps uh, was actually a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And, and to prove my point, I want to consider a vision that the Lord revealed to the prophet Zechariah during the days when the second temple was being built. And so if you would continue holding your place there in 1 Thessalonians, I want to turn in our Bibles now to Zechariah chapter 4. Now as you make your way to the fourth chapter of Zechariah, I just want to take a moment to point out that the Lord raised up uh, this priest named Zechariah to serve as a prophet shortly after the Babylonian captivity ended. And, and, And this was the point in time when the temple was already under reconstruction and as the temple was being you know, rebuilt, I'm guessing that Zechariah was beginning to wonder how a small number of priests were going to produce enough olive oil to keep the temple lamps burning 24-7. You see, it was a small group of people that left uh, you know, Babylon and, and went back to the land of promise. And there was even a smaller number of priests. And so Zechariah, who was a priest at that point in time, was probably thinking, how are we going to keep this lamp burning you know, once we get it all set up, once we get it all in operation, you know, what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to maintain temple services every day? And in light of this concern, I want to consider the way that the Lord encouraged the prophet Zechariah, who was probably filled with these concerns. If you would look with me here at Zechariah chapter 4, I want to begin reading there at verse 1, because here the prophet declares, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord, that's why I asked, what are these? But, uh, okay, I, that would be my translation. But anyway, so verse 6, he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Here in these verses, we find Zechariah, he's describing this vision that he received of this massive temple lampstand with seven golden bowls, and and he saw these pipes connected to two olive trees that were providing this steady flow of olive oil to the candelabrum, and and, you know, it's, it's just this incredible vision. 
And, and as he tried to make sense of this unusual vision, that's when the Lord revealed the meaning by helping him to understand that he didn't have to figure it all out. He didn't have to, to try to figure out how this small number of priests were going to keep the, the, can, the candle or the, uh, the candelabrum burning there in the temple. And the Lord said, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who provides the spiritual light that is needed for the temple of God. And yeah, the priests were you know, commanded to you know, bring in daily olive oil and to keep the lamp burning and these sorts of things. And yeah, yeah, that was, that was, their, that was their command. That, that was their ministry. And yet at the end of the day, it's really the Holy Spirit who provides the real light within the temple. And in this way, the candelabrum and the olive oil and the flame and all of that is simply a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And with all of this in mind, I want to remind you that during the church age, the born-again believer is now the temple of the living God. And as we consider the vision that the Lord presented to Zechariah, we can rejoice in knowing that we don't have to somehow manufacture the spiritual light that's within us. We don't have to, to conjure it up in some sort of way. The Holy Spirit is the light. And the Holy Spirit is the one who provides us with the supernatural light of the Lord. He's, he's providing us with everything that we need to, to fan the flame of this fire so that we can continue to walk in the light of the Lord. And with that being the case, Paul simply encourages us to avoid doing anything that would quench the flame. The, the flame is there, <laughs> just don't quench it. Don't put it out. With this as the focus, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to take a closer look at our text today. And so if you would look with me there at verse 19, here again Paul simply declares, do not quench the Spirit. Now that word quench is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who extinguish a fire. And in this context, Paul's clearly concerned about the Christians who were tempted to extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit in an, in an attempt to, you know, maybe avoid the persecutions that the church there in Thessalonica was enduring. No doubt, they were suffering incredible uh, levels of persecution. And so you better believe that there were Christians who were tempted to hide the fire of the Holy Spirit, so to speak to avoid being persecuted. You know, they probably have the same mentality as many Americans today do with the whole safety first nonsense. I just have to live a safe life. I just have to protect myself from any sort of difficulty. And it's not always the best way to live. Sometimes safety should be third or fourth. But these Christians had the safety first mentality of, oh, if I, if I can just stifle the flame of the Holy Spirit so they don't know that I'm a Christian, you know, then I can at least, you know, escape the persecution. So Paul says, don't do that. Don't hide your faith. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Knowing that the menorah in the temple of God was supposed to remain lit with a continual flame, Paul encouraged every Christian Refrain from quenching the fire of the Holy Spirit which is within us. 
And I like the way that the scholars who created the Bible in basic English, uh, they rendered verse 19 in this way. Do not put out the light of the Spirit. Do not put out the light of the Spirit. Or to put this in positive terms, let's make sure to keep the lampstand lit as we continue to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. With this as the goal, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, is the fiery flame of the Holy Spirit still burning bright within the temple of my body? Or have I quenched the Spirit by trying to hide the light of the Lord? Are you a flamer or not? That's the real question. The chances are some of us here this morning have actually quenched the flame of the Holy Spirit. And if this sounds like your situation, then I encourage you to realize that it's time to fan the flame of our faith so that we can become those believers who are walking in the power and in the light of the Lord. And with this as the goal, we should consider the three directives that Paul goes on to present here in our text today. You see, those who apply the discipleship directives that we find here in these verses, uh, they're going to simultaneously fan the spiritual flames of our faith. And with this as the focus, let's take a closer look at our text today, beginning again there at verse 19. Here Paul again declares, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. Now, that word despise is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who detest the very thing they're despising. The same Greek word, it speaks of the feelings of contempt that cause a person to mock what they despise. It's also a word that refers to those whose rejection of something or someone results in relentless ridicule. And it's for this reason that the scholars who created the New American Standard uh, version of the Bible, they render verse 20 in this way, do not utterly reject prophecies. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the prophecies that Paul was referring to, these were the divine discourses presented by the Christian teachers who were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And in this sense, the Greek word rendered prophecies. It's used in reference to the Christian leaders who were endowed with the spiritual gift of prophecy as they uh, were moved by the Holy Spirit. And while we tend to equate the word prophecy with the foretelling of future events, well, listen, the same Greek word was also used to those who were led by the Holy Spirit to create the prophetic word of God. In order to make my case, I should also take a, I should take a moment here to remind you about a promise that Jesus presented to his disciples. It's actually found in John chapter 16. It's there where he declares this. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Simply put, The Holy Spirit was sent to empower every Christian and to also provide the disciples of Christ with the godly guidance that they needed. And while I have no doubt that this included the divine inspiration by which they organized the primitive church, 
We can also be certain that the Holy Spirit was empowering some of them with this gift of prophecy. And in this way, the spirit of truth was empowering those who wrote the 27 books that we find in the New Testament so that every believer throughout the entire church age could receive the light of the truth that we need to walk in the light of the Lord. To further prove my point, I want to consider the way that the Apostle Peter put it in his second epistle. So if you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. As you make your way to the first chapter of 2 Peter, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the prophetic word of God is likened to a lamp for our feet and a light for the spiritual path that's before us. The word of God is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And with that being the case, we can be certain that the Holy Spirit has inspired both the Old and the New Testaments so that we can uh, uh, use the word of God like a lamp. And listen, those who hide his word in our hearts, well, we're simultaneously fanning the flame of our faith. With this in mind, I want to consider how the Apostle uh, Peter puts it. Here in 2 Peter chapter 1, look with me there, beginning at verse 19. Here Peter declares, We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Christian, listen, the entirety of the Bible was divinely inspired by the Spirit of truth. And it's for this reason that the Apostle Peter encouraged us to heed the prophetic word like a spiritual light that is illuminating the dark recesses of our hearts. Therefore, rather than quenching the light of the Holy Spirit by despising the prophetic word of God, we have to be hiding the light of his word in our hearts so that we might not sin against our Savior. And while it's not uncommon for Christians to come across you know, a, a passage of scripture that they just don't like, they don't agree with, they don't want to align their lives to, and so they dismiss it, they, they explain it away, they quench the Holy Spirit because they have a different perspective. And as I normally say when it comes to a situation like this, who knows better, you or God? Seems like a no-brainer now, doesn't it? If you disagree with something that you find in the Scriptures, something that cuts you to the quick, something that challenges your current lifestyle, guess who's wrong? I'll give you a hint. It's not God. So don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't despise the prophetic word of God. Rather, fan the flame of your faith with biblical prophecy so that we can align our lives to the light of the truth. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, we should not only fan the flame of our faith with biblical prophecy, but we should also fan the flame of our faith with doctrinal purity. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's, let's take a closer look at our text today, beginning again there at verse 19. Here again, Paul writes, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good. 
Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Thessalonica to understand that the believer who wants to fan the flames of their faith should not only receive the prophetic word of God, but we must also use the prophetic word of God to test the teachings of those who would step into the role of spiritual instructor. The minute somebody steps into the role of spiritual instructor and tries to tell you what God is saying or tries to teach you what the Bible's all about, you have to take the Bible and test their teachings. One reason why is due to the fact that there are wolves in sheep's clothing who are introducing doctrines of demons and knowing that the believer who embraces the doctrines of demons is simultaneously quenching the Holy Spirit, Paul encouraged them to test every teaching. And he told them to test every teaching with the spiritual light of truth, which is found in the word of God. This reminds me of the way that the Jews in Berea used the Old Testament scriptures as a standard for testing the teachings of Paul. As a matter of fact, it's in Acts chapter 17 where Luke describes the Jews there in Berea by informing us that they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. In other words, these Jews there in Berea were willing to consider the theological teachings that Paul was presenting, and yet at the same time, they didn't have minds that were so open that their brains fell out, right? They were quick to put Paul's teachings to the test. And they did this by using the spiritual light of the Old Testament scriptures to examine his doctrines. You might not know this, but you know, a, a huge percentage of everything Paul says in the New Testament came from the Old Testament. The people who try to tell us that the Old Testament is no longer necessary for us, well, if you started cutting out every Old Testament passage from the New Testament, you'd be left with about a third of the New Testament. The Old Testament is extremely important for us. And it helped the Berean Jews to, to see that what Paul was saying actually lined up with what had already been approved. And in this way, those Jews maintained their devotion to the word of God while simultaneously considering the possibility that the gospel message that Paul was preaching was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as we now know that it as actually is. But it's in, in, in similar fashion to their example that we too ought to be using the entire prophetic word of God to test the teachings of every teacher. The minute somebody tries to tell you about God, the minute somebody tries to tell you about what God's plan is and these sorts of things, we need to test their teaching in light of the doctrines of the scriptures. And, and I like the way that the Apostle John put it in 1 Peter chapter 4. It's verse 1 where he declares this. He says, Beloved, do not, be, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Christian, listen, the world is filled with false prophets. Do you believe that? Do you really, do you really believe that? Or do you just turn on TBN and just watch it like there could be nothing wrong here? Do you just walk into the Christian bookstore or, or go on to christianbooks.com or whatever, you know, and just think, well, nothing could be wrong here. It says Christian there in, in the URL. If it says Christian on the URL, then everything here has got to be Christian, Right? Wrong. We have to test those teachers that we listen to. And I'm pointing that finger at me. You need to test me. Don't just come to this church and take my word for it because I have a Calvary dove you know, on the wall behind me. 
The world is filled with false teachers who are teaching doctrines of demons. And listen, the false teachers who are being influenced by evil spirits have no problem twisting the scriptures to their own destruction and to the detriment of those who follow them. It would be foolish for us to think that the preacher who has a Bible in hand must be automatically speaking the truth. We must take the time to test the teachings of every teacher, knowing that the devil and his demons are trying to convince us to quench the flame of the Holy Spirit so that our lampstand might be removed. That being the case, let's take a closer look at this second directive found here in verse 21. There again, Paul declares, test all things, hold fast what is good. Now that word good is translated from a Greek word which was used of that which is pure and praiseworthy. The same word was also used in reference to the true and approved teachings of those who were proclaiming the truth of God's word. And with that being the case, Paul was encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica to critically examine the teachings of every teacher so that they could hold fast to the teachings that are true. And in this way, those who are born of the Spirit will fan the flames of our faith with the pure doctrine of God's holy word. Conversely, the believer who embraces the doctrines of demons are also quenching the light of the Holy Spirit. And it's sad to say that there are many in the church today who are being led astray by deceivers who have been blinded by their own unbelief. And with that being the case, we'd all do well to consider the warning that Paul presented to the Christians in Corinth. If you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As you make your way to the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the fiery flame of the Holy Spirit is only given to those who trust in the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. What this means then is that those who reject the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus have also been blinded by their unbelief. And I don't care, you know, how many years they spent in college. I don't care how smart they are in, in a natural sense. If, if they are rejecting Jesus Christ, they are walking in the blindness of unbelief. And with this in mind, I want to consider the warning that Paul presents here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 2. Here Paul declares, We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Incredible. Paul here is presenting the Christians in Corinth with a clear contrast between those who are still handling the word of God deceitfully and those who are presenting the true light of the gospel message. And it's sad that there were so many Jews there in the first century who had been blinded by their own unbelief and as a result... There were Jews that were teaching the Old Testament, but they were handling the word of God deceitfully. The reason why is because they were rejecting the light of the Holy Spirit. 
as they rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And at the same time, they were also leading their followers astray with deceitful doctrines. In similar fashion, listen, there are many false teachers in the world today who are also twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. They claim to be teaching the light of the truth, and yet, in reality, they're blind. And with that being the case, we do well to test every teaching with the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. And in this way, we will receive the spiritual light that we need to expose the deceitful doctrines of every false teacher. And not only that, but we'll also become those believers who are walking in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as we fan the flame of our faith with the doctrinal purity of God's prophetic word. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, we should not only fan the flame of faith with biblical prophecy, and we should not only fan the flame of faith with doctrinal purity, but we should also fan the flame of our faith with sacrificial piety. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to take a closer look at our text today, beginning again at verse 19. Here Paul declares, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now as we take a closer look at there at verse 22, it'll help us to know that the word abstain, it's actually translated from the same Greek word that Paul used back in chapter 4, where he informed every Christian that it's God's will for us to abstain from sexual immorality. That's right, Christians have been commanded to abstain from every form of sexual immorality, which includes premarital sex, this includes adultery, and listen, every other sexual perversion that falls under the pride movement. Listen, whatever is happening within the LGBTQI++++ you know, movement, listen, it is sexual immorality according to the, the God who created us. And, and they can you know, wave their, their, their flags, their rainbow flag all day long. It doesn't change God's mind. And they can accuse us of being bigots, and they can accuse us of being haters. And at the end of the day, this still does not change God's mind about it. We have been commanded to abstain from every form of sexual immorality. And then Paul even takes it further here in our text today and tells us that Christians have also been commanded to abstain from every form of evil. We've been commanded to abstain from even the appearance of evil. You know, the, the, the Christian couple that's not yet married and yet living together, but then says, yeah, but we're not doing it. You know, we're, 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 we're living in two different rooms. You know, it's the appearance of evil. It's the appearance of premarital sex to live together and not be married. Abstain from every form of evil. It'll help you to know that the word evil here is translated from a Greek word which is used to describe that which is ethically immoral, corrupt, and wicked. And when it comes to the task of defining the difference between that which is evil and that which is good, we must not fail to realize that we now live in a time when good is being called evil and evil is being called good. For example... Abortion, you know, the, the killing of innocent life in the womb, this is called health care. Yeah, they call it health care. And health care is good, right? They also call those who oppose abortion haters that, that were just filled with hate. What about the, the physical mutilation of minors, which is called gender-affirming care? Yeah, this is caring, right? To, to chop healthy body parts off of healthy 
you know, youth. That's caring, right? And those who would oppose the transgender movement are called transphobes and bigots. As we consider the direction our nation is headed in, I, I can't help but to remember the warning that Isaiah presented in Isaiah chapter 5. It's there where he says this. He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. Woe to those who drink Bud Light. That's, I, I, I'm just pretty sure it's in the Hebrew there, but uh, I don't know. My eyes are getting old, maybe. It says, woe to those who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. As we consider this word of warning, we do well to realize that we're living in these days when the loudest voices are calling evil good, and they're calling good evil. They're calling light darkness, and they're calling darkness light. And they feel completely justified in this. And the reason why is because they have no real standard for defining right and wrong. The only standard they have is how they feel about things or what they want. And so they are their own standard, therefore they are their own God. That being the case, it's important for us to realize that the Christian who is embracing these societal standards, they're simultaneously quenching the light of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we would all do well to consider the correct way to identify the difference between good and evil. And listen, society's standard is not the right way. The mob's opinion does not change the mind of God. With that, I want to notice again here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you would look again at verse 21 and 22, he says, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Here we find Paul encouraging his audience to hold fast to what is good, while simultaneously abstaining from what is evil. He's presenting us with this, you know, this concept of good and evil. And, and the word good, again, is, re, is used in reference to the pure doctrine of God's prophetic word. Therefore, it only stands to reason that the word evil here is then also in reference to any depraved doctrine which would cause us to quench the fiery flame of the Holy Spirit. And what this means then is that we ought to be using the word of God as the spiritually inspired standard that helps us to define what is good and what is evil. Don't use your opinion. I can't even tell you how many times my opinions have been wrong. And I'm guessing you can say the same for yourself that we've all had opinions that at the end of the day we realized, oh, I was wrong. You know, for example, when I was younger, I voted Democrat, and I realized I was wrong. Then I voted Republican. 
helped Bush get in the White House, and I realized I was wrong. So now I'm an independent voter. I vote based on what the person is saying, what their lifestyle is like, and do they line up with the Bible or not? I don't care what side of the aisle they're sitting on. Do you line up with the word of God or not? That is my only question. And so I vote Republican. But no, I'm I'm joking. (laughs) I stand as a staunch independent, ready to vote for whoever lines up with the scriptures. We would do well to use the word of God to, uh, to examine every doctrine, look at every politician and, and, and the people who want to lead us and, and line up and see if they line up with the word of God or not. And we should do the, the same thing for our own lives as well. We need to make sure that we are aligning our lives to the truth of God's word so that we can accomplish what is good and abstain from what is evil. This is precisely the point that Paul is making in Galatians chapter 5. It's there where he declares, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Here in these verses, we find Paul presenting us with a definitive way to identify the difference between good and evil. And not only that, but he's also encouraging us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can abstain from every form of evil. We we ought to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might abstain from even the appearance of evil. And with this as the goal, Paul commanded every Christian to sacrifice the sinful desires that we're still struggling with. He tells us to crucify the flesh with all of its evil passions and sinful desires. Don't entertain them. Don't feed them and fuel the flames of that fire. Oh, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. And in this way, we'll fan the flames of the Holy Spirit with sacrificial piety. With that, I want to remind you about the encouragement that Paul presented in Ephesians chapter 4. There he declares, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Christian, listen, those who are quenching the Holy Spirit are also grieving the Holy Spirit who is dwelling within us. Every time we sin against God, we're grieving the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us. We're defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit every time we sin. 
God, help us. Knowing that every sin brings grief to the indwelling spirit of God, Paul encouraged every Christian to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires so that we can live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. With this as the goal, I encourage you, let's fan the flame of our faith with sacrificial piety as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. As we're beginning to wrap up this study, it's crucial for every Christian to remember that the believers who are walking in the flesh are simultaneously quenching the fiery flame of the Holy Spirit. We're acting like that Brazilian guy who rushed out with a bucket full of water trying to quench the flame on the Olympic torch. And every time we quench the fiery flame of the Holy Spirit, well, we're the ones who end up suffering as we cause our own arrested state of spiritual development. You see, we need the fire of the Holy Spirit to be sanctified and perfected, spiritually speaking. And with that being the case, I encourage every Christian in closing, let's fan the flame of our faith by focusing our mind on biblical prophecy. We should also fan the flame of our faith as we embrace the doctrinal purity of God's word. And finally, we fan the flame of our faith with the sacrificial piety that leads us to abstain from every form of evil as we crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. And as we continue to fan the flames of faith in these sorts of ways, well, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord will help us to live in his light for his glory and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.